Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. This week I review the new law in Texas about teaching critical race theory in the state school system with my special guest, Dr. Michael Hester. Mike teaches in the communications department at the University of West Georgia, where he coaches the debate team and serves as a special advisor to the university's chief diversity officer. We've been friends for 33 years now, ever since he was in high school. I was in college, and he was one of my students at a summer debate camp for high school students. Mike is one of the most dynamic and best-prepared university classroom teachers to be found anywhere, and in our interview, he offers insight after insight, both about critical race theory itself and its relationship to our new Texas statute. I learned a lot from speaking with him, and I look forward to sharing it with you in this podcast. Political dialogue has been taken over in the last several months by this thing called critical race theory. And depending on who you read, it's the source of all evil in our schools and our society today. What is this thing? What is everybody talking about when they're talking about critical race theory? First, I want to. I saw a, there was a Washington Post article that was posted yesterday, uh, which would have been October 7th, that was documenting what you just said about how often this has become part of the conversation taking place. And I was seeing where there was in July alone of this past year, it was mentioned 921 times on Fox News. That was after being mentioned a total of only 132 times in all of 2020. It's definitely become something bigger. You're asking me the question, like, what is critical race theory? Then usually if I were teaching this course on the history of, I would go back to a law professor, Derek Bell, who had done work with the Department of Justice and the NAACP on some of their desegregation cases in Mississippi in the late 50s and into the early 60s. He moved on to become a legal scholar. And his argument basically boiled down to the civil rights movement was not as successful as we think it was. And his idea was twofold for that. One was that it was not a convincing argument in the sense of the moral claim being made by Dr. King and others that convinced the larger majority population to be like, oh my gosh, we were wrong. Jim Crow was a terrible thing. We should get rid of segregation. But rather, one of the key terms that he introduced that has become a very important part of critical race theory is this notion of interest convergence, which was from a communication scholar perspective, kind of intuitive. It's basically the idea that the majority was not going to move on what the minority wanted until the majority thought that it was in their best interest to do it. So it wasn't that the white majority in America was won over by the claims of oppression or the need or justifications for freedom. Rather, there was other stuff going on. And at the same time, the civil rights movement was making claims about the founding documents of the United States, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and how they should promise freedom to all individuals. There was another argument that was being made globally, which was that the United States form of government was superior to that of the Soviet Union. And what was happening quite literally in international fora, such as the United Nation, was the Soviet Union, whenever the United States complained about communism and its oppression of its people, the Soviet Union quite rightly was saying like, well, you know, you've got a problem yourself and that might be something you want to work on before you come tell us how to fix our house. Why don't you fix your own? Derek Bell's argument was clearly that that argument, in other words, the hypocrisy or the allegations of hypocrisy that was being thrown back in the U.S.'s face in these international forum as they were attempting to contest communism was a much stronger motivation for the quote-unquote civil rights progress that happened in the U.S. That's one of his key arguments was this notion of interest convergence. 
Another argument that became pretty big for him was essentially that racism is kind of baked in. His argument was, if you look back at the history of the U.S., there were constantly moves being made that attempted to oppress, marginalize, or exclude particular groups, mostly talking about black Americans. And so he goes back to, of course, we all don't have to recount everything about the, the U.S. Constitution and the various compromises that were made along the way not only in the late 18th century when the document was being formed, but into the 19th century with the various compromises as new states were coming in, all of that. His point was, that's here, and that's not really going anywhere. And that was really the two pillars of his argument. So his, his notion was, and this is where it's really important to remember he was a legal theorist, his argument was simply this. Whenever we are dealing with the law and racism, we need to account for those two, what he would consider facts, that racism is sort of baked into the law. And by that, I mean that it is almost inextricably intertwined with how the law has developed. And people don't change because they suddenly have a light turned on and be like, oh my gosh, we should be better. But rather, they think something's in it for them. And those two claims he used to explain that that's why the Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 has not really affected much as of 1964, right? And that's where it's important to remember his history. He was working for the NAACP in the late 1950s, and he came upon this frustration with the lack of desegregation occurring in Mississippi. And you can imagine someone who has his sort of uh, sensibility, what he would become in terms of a legal theorist, looking at this and be like, I don't get it. The Supreme Court said Brown versus Board of Education, this is ridiculous. We should be getting rid of these Jim Crow laws. And yet that wasn't happening. And so critical race theory was his way to explain why Brown versus Board of Education did not result in a snap your fingers moment, wow, now we're desegregated. And so he had an explanation of history that from a legal standpoint explained why changes in the law do not necessarily change society. And he did that with, with a specific focus on racism in the U.S. So that would be sort of my answer to what is critical race theory in the very technical sort of dictionary sense. And that leads to the next logical question, which is, I don't think there have been 921 references on Fox News to Derek Bell. And I don't think there have been 921 references to the specific cases that you've cited. Professor Bell's work was a pretty high-level theoretical critique of some basic legal concepts that you learn about in law school. But to be able to converse about it, you have to be at a law school level to understand what precedent is, how the legal system works, and then bring to bear these analytical tools. But what's being talked about in the media is definitely not that. It's something simpler, more fundamental. I'm not sure quite what, but you study that. What is it that people are talking about when they use that label as distinct to the intellectual foundational work by Professor Bell that you've been telling us about? Absolutely. So I'll answer that question first with a preface of one of the other pillars of his critical race theory. And when I explain it and we remove outside the legal realm, you'll understand how that, like, what's going on? One of his other key arguments was the problem with legal reasoning is it is from his perspective, arcane, it requires, like you were saying, a very complex piece is moving and you have to understand the law and you use precedent and there's funky words like stare decisis or whatever you're talking about. It keeps out the law. competitors <laughs> if we use lots of funky words. So his, uh, trade his, secret. His, Go ahead. His mean. complaint was there's no role for narrative for a for the common person to tell their story in a courtroom that it tends to be robbed of any of its power if it's listened to at all. So one of the other key pillars of critical race theory is the power of narrative to make an argument, which if you're a law student, 
talking about legal theory and the courtroom, that makes sense in the, in, in the sense of what his complaint is about. But when you, move, when you move it out of the courtroom and now you're trying to apply critical race theory to education or to everyday conversations, it's like, well, hold on, the power of narrative. Well, yeah, people tell stories all the time. And that to me is a great way to understand how we've stretched critical race theory way beyond what it was originally created for. Not necessarily that it can't be, but that you understand what you're doing. That one of his key arguments was there has to be a place for someone to be able to tell their story. And he was talking about the courtroom. But when we turn to other areas of public policy, those places clearly exist. I mean, narrative is pretty much the bedrock of fiction writing. That's what narratives are. So to try to apply critical race theory to say English curricula wouldn't make a lot of sense because what Derrick Bell was saying was you can't tell this type of story, but you that's exactly what you do in other areas. To hear areas. your explanation, so, law and in particular appellate law, discussion about the law itself as opposed to trial work, which does involve people telling stories and giving narratives, it may be unique among the major institutions of power in our government, and that there really is no place for narrative other than to explain why you're applying doctrine in a certain way. But making policy, the work administrative agencies do, our First Amendment protected institutions where people talk in the media about things, all of that is storytelling. Absolutely, absolutely. And so so now to answer your question of why are we, how did this become such, I'll look at, let's look at the terms itself, just breaking it down. Critical, race, and theory that those all have triggering effects in the 21st century. And race has always been a controversial subject for some of the reasons we just discussed, or the history of the United States and, and what has happened in this country and continues to happen. But then the words critical in theory, those also are triggering terms for a couple of reasons. One is just critical theory as a combination points to another strand of academic theorizing, uh, also from Harvard. You know, Harvard gets some credit for some of this as well. You had we, like to, we like to criticize things, so it <laughs> yeah, works out, exactly. works out well. Academics, like. academics like to critique. And so you've got critical, and in theory, it just sounds academic, right? Theory sounds like, well, hold on. Why aren't we dealing in facts? Why are we talking about theory? And so when you combine all of them together, it's got the essence of what what makes for the boogeyman. You know, that the boogeyman, when I mean by that, is that character that I can't quite define, but I know I'm afraid of. I'm not sure where it's at, but it's probably around. Like that sort of paranoia and paranoid thinking. Critical race theory is perfect for that because on the surface, it's so vague and abstract that what the heck does critical race theory mean? But it's also one of those things where it's almost like Potter's definition of obscenity, right? I, I'll know it when I see it, right? I, I, I don't know what it is, but that doesn't sound good. Like that's, and so it, it's become perfect and it's short and quick. It's got the bumper sticker slogans type, right? If I say, I don't want people talking about racism, well, that sounds a little, that sounds overbroad. Like, what are you talking about? But if I say, I don't want people talking about critical race theory, oh, okay, well, certainly, why would we want people to talk about that, right? Like it's easier to turn into whatever you want it to be. So I think it fits the scroll on the bottom of the screen, the news ticker. You can, ease, you can shorten it to CRT, which is how it's referred to. So it admits a lot of the, in terms of checking the boxes for how media like to exaggerate and fearmonger, it checks all the boxes. It's got some terms that are abstract enough where people can be told anything about it, but specific enough where I kind of know what that is. It's short enough to put on the bottom of the screen and refer to. And then, as you know, with the Google machines now, you can do quick searches and find pretty much anything you want being referenced as critical race theory. And that's what's happened. You know, the, the joke I told you about, it would, it would be as if we tried to outlaw the teaching of quantum physics in science courses, but then define quantum physics as all of science or anytime we want, didn't like something about science. And that's quantum physics. Talk about the language at the bottom of the screen. We have language in our statutes now. And in particular, for those keeping score at home, central part of the definitional provisions of our new statute is in edu Texas Education Code 28.0022 little a 
for capital A. And the part that is most relevant to our back and forth about just what is this and where are we going with it, what does it stand for, it has a prohibition and then a list of things that are prohibited. And the prohibition reads as follows. A teacher, administrator, or other employee of a state agency, school district, or open enrollment charter school, okay, so people who work for schools, may not, A, require or make part of a course inculcation in the concept that, and then it lists a number of concepts that, and we'll talk about some of the details here in a little bit. The word inculcation is an unusual word to see in a statute like that. The education code has a lot of provisions, as you would imagine, about you shall teach this and you shall not teach that. And I get that. You're trying to set curriculum for the state and there are things you want to teach and things you don't want to teach. That makes sense. But the word inculcation is a peculiar word. It's not really teaching. It suggests sort of an illegitimate, abusive exercise of the teacher-student relationship. As someone who, in fact, is a professional teacher and who engages ideas of critical race theory in your professional work, I wondered what your reaction was to that word, particularly in kind of the lead-in sentence to the more uh, detailed paragraphs that follow it about what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, inculcate, when I think of inculcate, I think of persistent instruction. You're trying to instill through persistent instruction, per certain habits. And so to break down sort of higher education for us, I, I want to divide, let's take a school of nursing in which students are being instructed to perform a particular role or job like a nurse. And they are being inculcated through persistent instruction. They are being taught how to perform a particular task. The same thing would be true in, in other degree programs that I would describe, not in a pejorative sense to say they are vocational. There is a particular job you are being taught to do. On the other hand, there are, I'm thinking of undergraduate degrees minus political science, my bachelor's in political science. I can think of several others, art history, sociology, even one that may seem technical on the outside, criminology. Teachers aren't really inculcating, right? The idea is not I'm teaching you how to be a criminologist or I'm teaching you how to be a political scientist. Instead, I'm teaching you about a field. And so the education, if we're comparing sort of heavy versus light, would definitely be on the lighter side of, I'm not really inculcating in that sense. And so, yeah, you're right. That term assumes that any subject could be inculcated, inculcative in its teaching, and it's really not how education works. It's interesting to hear you describe that because in my training as a lawyer, law school is, is a little bit a foot in both worlds. You you study grand theory, we were talking about earlier, how Preston fits together in the vocabulary we've developed over centuries to describe law. But there's also practical matters, like when you go to court, where do you sit? How do you write something in a way that matches what courts expect of you? And that is very much a practical inculcation type of exercise. But it doesn't look a lot like what's on the list, <laughs> which is definitely a list of concepts rather than a list of techniques, for sure. And there were a couple of them that I wanted to get your take on and then perhaps dis discuss some things that aren't on the list then to get a fuller perspective on these ideas. The, among the things that we are not to require or make part of a course inculcation in is item two. An individual by virtue of the individual's race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, and related to that is heading three, an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of the individual's race or sex. I won't try to rephrase those statements. I'm just going to, I've just read them directly what it says there. How do those ideas that are being expressed in those two parts of this statute relate to 
what you understand critical race theory to be and how you try to implement it in your teaching. Yeah, sure. In other words, is this statute referring to something that does in fact exist or something that we should be concerned about, or is it not tied into what's going on? Okay, well, two levels of a question there, of answer there. One is, I work in higher education. I've, I've been teaching for more than a quarter of a century at a university, and so there are answers that I'm going to give to this based on the courses that I have worked with, but I'm, there's also the second one is K-12. through One of the problems is, I'm not sure any of this ever actually occurs in K-12, through but in terms of higher education, I have taught a course and have taught it more than once. Rhetoric of Civil Rights, remember, we sort of discussed the civil rights era as a long theory of racial justice movements in the U.S. And we go all the way back to, say, 1829 and David Walker's On the Rights of the Negro Citizens of the World. And we talk about Frederick Douglass, 1851, July 4th speech on independence for whom, all the way up to current Black Lives Matter, sort of this history of social movements. We talk about it. And within that conversation is a discussion of various theories or realities, periods in time in which the these ideas and concepts were not only being taught, but being implemented. So I mentioned earlier Jim Crow. The notion of separate but equal with 1896's Plessy versus Ferguson was one in which the court said, as long as folks are being given equal treatment, it's okay to separate them. And then there's a lengthy historical understanding that, well, it didn't quite work out that way. And so we talk about these, and within that, we discuss the racism that was inflicted on a particular group, in this case, Black Americans, and the beneficiaries of that, the majority society, which at that time, those privileges were gained explicitly in the law if you were white. So if you walked up to a water fountain, and there were two different water fountains, you were going to be in trouble if you were a black American attempting to drink from the wrong water fountain. And the litany of various public services that were separated in that way. And so we would discuss those, and we would talk about correctives to those, not only desegregation, but we talk about the history of the move for affirmative action that occurred in higher education and also in potentially in federal contracting and what that means and all the various levels of that. And at no point in those conversations have I ever instructed my students that the individual was the key to this. In other words, what you're seeing in little one, little two, little three that you're talking about, for example, an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of the individual's race or sex. Critical race theory, when it's brought up in these conversations, as I mentioned earlier, would not suggest that an individual should be discriminated against or receive adverse treatment solely or partly because of the individual's race or sex. Now, having said that, there are individuals who believe that the corrective measure for whether it be desegregation or, for example, the infringement on property that was illegally obtained through a discriminatory period. I'm thinking of the farmers in South Africa that have had their plots of land reorganized because those plots of land were created during apartheid. Some of that same sort of policy being discussion. Critics of that could be, whoa, 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 hold on. Now I'm being discriminated against because I'm white. I had this power. I had this property. I had this wealth. And you're telling me I don't get that anymore. So that's where you would know this as a lawyer, that two people can look at the same situation and describe a very different event and what's going on. But in terms of a sort of a tenant, like just start with principle number one, this individual is superior to that individual because of their race. No, it doesn't work like that. That's, that's not really what critical race is. Now, are there people who talk about race that are proponents of that theory. Absolutely. Like you can get into the wackadoos that do the ice people and the sun people and have all of these weird biologically essentialist theories that are really just the flip side of the coin of what 
the white scientists were doing in the late 17th, 18th, 19th century to describe race. So do those people exist? Yes. Is that part of critical race theory? No. Is that being taught in higher education? Heck no. As you point out, many of these first items in our list are restatements of an individual, attributing certain things to individuals. Towards the middle of the list, it expands a little bit or morphs a little bit, might be more accurate, from individuals to more conceptual things. Item six on the list tells us that among the things we should not do is require teaching that meritocracy or traits such as a hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by members of a particular race to oppress members of another race. I'm of two minds about that one. The meritocracy or traits such as a hard work ethic seems like straw men. But from what you've been talking about, I do pick up that one of the concepts in critical race theory is that some ideas that we have in our society come with some baggage. Yeah, so let's bring in another Texan for a moment. When Lyndon Johnson gave one of his famous speeches, essentially justifying affirmative action, he used the metaphor of the foot race. And he described a world in which there had been limits and hindrances and barriers on one of the competitors for a lengthy period of time to create a structural disadvantage. And now we're going to start the race where another competitor has a large head start over them. That's an example where, depending on the snapshot of time that you look at, meritocracy may not quite be what you think. Derek Bell would not say meritocracy is stupid, we should get rid of it, but rather meritocracy cannot be a cover or a, a mask to prevent us from digging deeper to understand how we got to where we got. And if we don't properly account for how we got to where we are, using meritocracy from this point forward is not going to achieve what you think it's going to. Now, having said that, are there people who identify, they were the t-shirt that says, I am a critical race theorist, who will tell you that meritocracy is horrible? Absolutely. That's, that's the thing about it is, this is what I tell people when I used to talk about Black Lives Matter as well. You can get a bumper sticker and you can put it on your car and say CRT. You can wear a t-shirt and you can say you're a proponent of CRT, just as there are people who walk around and tell you they're Christian. And then when they describe to you how they live your life, you're like, doesn't sound very Christianly to me. There are people in critical race theory who will say meritocracy is horrible. I would say they're bad at making their argument, that the argument that critical race theory is making is that meritocracy cannot exist in the fair sense that we want it to until we properly accounted for the history that got us to where we are. That's the distinction. In some ways, strangely enough, there's some common ground there. You probably wouldn't use the language of the statute or the mechanism of the statute, but I think you would encourage perhaps some of your colleagues to focus their ideas in more constructive ways, perhaps. Of course, absolutely. Bad rhetoric. Bad rhetoric is, is a big problem here. And that's what, and when we talk about where this is being implemented, power matters. This is what Derek Bell always said. Power matters. What power do those people have? Don't quote me some random person that wrote a book. What school board are they on? Where are they teaching? Who, what power do they have in the school system? Before you complain about the boogeyman, tell me what the boogeyman can do. We're talking a lot about your higher education history over the last 25 years as informed by some groundbreaking work that came out of some law schools. This just doesn't sound like high school civics class right. stuff yes. where you're still learning the vocabulary. We have three branches of government. There was a civil war. I mean, you're, you're on the learning the basic facts, sort of the basic concepts. These just don't seem very 
secondary school to me. Not at all. In fact, I have a former debater of mine. She uh, She's currently in PhD program at Florida State, but she did her master's work in, in history and she's doing her, her PhD in history now. And her master's thesis is on middle school level history textbooks in the state of Texas from the period of 1965 to 1990. And when we, she was showing me those texts and we were looking at them and it was hilarious, David, because I grew up in Georgia. So I obviously had a different textbook, but when she when she handed it to me, I was like, I know what that is. That's a history book because it had the size, it had the shape. Like I, I immediately was back in seventh and eighth grade. And when I opened up and read the passages about slavery, it was bad. Like it, it was, they, it was really, really bad. The poor slaves were going to have to go find work on their own because they were no longer going to be able. To, like it was rough, David. I'm not. I mean, it, it, shock and awe. The reason why I bring that up now is there are times where a bad version of history can definitely inculcate, if we want to return to that term, can inculcate and make us think about things in a certain way. But you're so right. Like if we look back at what's going on in case, it, let's take middle school and high school, the secondary. Age, grades 6 through 12 or 7 through 12, depending on your school system. When you're taking history, and Georgia history is a required course in the state of Georgia right. for every student. We do. We have Texas same. history too. Yeah, it's the same thing, right? The, the teacher is, is tasked with running through 200 plus years of history. And the concern should not be that they are diving too deeply down a, a rabbit hole that you don't want your kid to learn. The reality is they're probably not covering anything as much as we need them to cover. And that's that's no fault of the teacher that we're, we're asking them to discuss a whole realm of issues. And shallow is probably the better critique rather than, oh my gosh, we're teaching them the wrong. So so I would say this is not a concern. And that's whenever I, I read these articles, I, I watch the news shows, I keep waiting for someone to point out the terrible thing that's happening in K through 12. And I'm, I'm missing it. I'm not getting it. The final line item in this list here is item eight. With respect to their relationship to American values, slavery and racism are anything other than deviations from, betrayals of, or failures to live up to the authentic founding principles of the United States, which include liberty and equality. Actually, this one gets as close as possible to the debate that would occur amongst scholars who believe that racism was a problem in the U.S., right? Like, let's sort of Instead of thinking about this as the the folk the CRT and the anti-CRT folks, let's within race scholarship there are those who and I'll, I'll point out just you know sort of the traditional civil rights movement. Dr. King, um, Dr. C. T. Vivian, I'm currently teaching some of his curriculum now, are what I would consider an idealist version of the American founding documents, and their argument is that racism and not just slavery, but it's always important to think about the post-Reconstruction Jim Crow era up until the current, that that is not an anomaly. That's probably the not term, the right term to use, but like this language uses, a violation. That it is a contradiction that taints and poisons the well of the American dream. Every speech by Dr. King pretty, makes the, pretty much makes the argument that says, yo America, here's a mirror. This is what you said you are. Here's the reality. Here's what you are, that contradiction. On the other hand, there are critical race theorists who say it was never about that, that it was never about freedom for all. That was just a term that was used to cover for the type of society that those folks wanted to live in. And we can apply that beyond race, obviously. And we go back to it was never all men are created equal if men meant all people because you had to be landowning not only your race, but whether you own property, your gender. There were a lot of other categories that determined whether you had suffrage, whether you could vote. And so 
That language is getting as close to the contention that occurs between folks who study racial justice and how do we get better and things like that is that debate between those who say, if only America would live up to his ideals and those who say, stop believing America has ideals. That's essentially the argument that occurs between. The list is done. There are a couple of other things we're not supposed to do under the statute. And this is big heading C. You are not to require an understanding of the 1619 project. Presumably, you could teach a class that covered it but did not require anyone to understand it, I guess. But perhaps more relevant is, what the heck is it? It is something you often hear mentioned in these discussions about the media version of critical race theory. What is it and how does it fit into the concepts that we've been talking about? Right. Okay. So the 1619 Project is publicly associated with the New York Times. The idea was that, for those who aren't familiar, 1619 is a year when there were Africans that arrived into the New World. And I use that term Africans there because one of the arguments made by the historians who promote the 1619 Project is that was the start of slavery, that these individuals arrived as slaves and that arrival in the Jamestown colonies and in the Atlantic Coast colonies are the introduction of this period of anti-blackness. The project itself is a history project that is supposed to uncover those stories and talk about that sort of period. The problem, as you pointed out, with why we wouldn't want people to understand that is one could perhaps understand it and disagree with it. And to give that example, and I'll go back to what I said about Africans, there's a discussion about actually when those first Africans arrived, they were not chattel slaves, but rather indentured servants. And there's this weird period, I'm using the, emphasizing this word weird, there's this weird period in the, in the Americas between, say, 1619 and the early 1700s where this definitional shift takes place. We have individuals who go from being indentured servants to being slaves. And there's a critique of the 1619 Project that says, eh, you're wrong about whether they arrived as slaves. They arrived actually as indentured servants and there's other things going on. And there's a fascinating conversation about Bacon's Rebellion that, that, that discusses that and how it was the cross-racial alliance between the white indentured servants and the black indentured servants that scared the heck out of the elites in Virginia and that led to the racial caste system. Like, There's a very robust discussion and criticism of the Sixteen nineteen project on some of his things. Unfortunately, this is perfectly. This is a perfect example of the. No, we don't want you to talk about it at all. We're going to throw out not only the baby, not only the bathwater, but the entire bathroom. It's all going out. You know, like get rid of all of it. And so the sixteen nineteen project is essentially a history project promoted by the New York Times as a curriculum add-on. There are legitimate criticisms amongst historical scholars about some of the details, but. Again, it seems like overreach to say we, we wouldn't want to, to in our students to know about it. Let's say that you're walking down the street and came to visit me here in Texas, and we encountered someone who had been a proponent of this statute, who has genuine concerns about the education of people and the things that are listed in this statute, but they were interested in learning more about it and wanted to understand it more, and you had a chance to speak to them. What might you say to them to say, look, here's what you the way you should refine your thinking about this to kind of move past where you are and maybe get going in a different direction with it. I think person to person, how would you help someone feel better, be calmer about some of these ideas? One move to make on pretty much any subject is to know the difference between your first level sources and your secondary sources. When, when we talk about news, what we're talking about is, and this is, I work in a school of communication, film, and media. So when I say the problem is the media, I, I don't mean that in a blanket sense, but we've got this filter of the person you're watching on a news program or reading in a newspaper, the likelihood that they are an expert on the subject they're discussing is very low. 
That's why we bring in special guests. You have a guest come in and talk about various things, right? But even when they choose that guest, there's a little bit of a gatekeeping function. So what I always tell my students when they want to learn more about the subject is go back to the original sources. So in the case of critical race theory, go back and read Derek Bell, like start there. You know, there are some other scholars that potentially predate him that may be refer referencing stuff we talk about now with critical race theory, but start with him. Read some of those pieces would be where I would suggest. There's, there's others as well. I mean, we, we could name three or four other authors, but my point is a larger one, which is go to the original sources. Rather than letting someone tell you what CRT is about, go figure it out for yourself and then return to how those folks talk about it. So that's number one. And then the second one is the more information, the better. Now, this is partly just my debate background, but I'm of the belief that if you're a policymaker, if someone who has to make a decision on a timeline, then there can be a paralysis into the analysis of, okay, we've got enough information to make a decision. But when you're a general person trying to learn more, there can never be too much information. Gain more, read another book. For example, we, we talked about other areas. I just want to throw one name out there. Ladson Billings is her last name, L-A-D-S-O. In dash billings talks a lot about CRT in education. So much so that she's sort of become a Derek Bell figure in education circles, right? So if you're scared of what CRT is going to do in education, start with her work as the beginning. And then this is the important part for this part of the discussion. Don't just read the articles, then see what of those ideas have actually been implemented. Because that's always sort of my pushback when we get to this part about, oh my gosh, they're teaching. Are they really teaching that? You read an article that says someone thinks that. That's not the same as they're teaching that. Because Ladson Billings and her advocates would say, this isn't happening. That's, that's the, the hilarious thing about this is CRT folk say, y'all are not teaching this as a complaint of the education system, while people who are against CRT are yelling at the same school board, y'all are teaching this. Like literally people who don't like each other and disagree with each other are both complaining that the school board is doing something, in one case not doing it, in the other case doing it. And so that's, my recommendation is read the original sources, then actually follow through on what's happening in the world. Not what could happen, not what might happen down the road, but what could. And then always remember any subject that's controversial is, is not a a reason to run away from it, you know? It would be like saying that we should no longer talk about fascism or Nazi Germany because those are horrible ideas and we wouldn't want to promote that notion. That's true, which is why we need to understand it. That's why we need to know what's going on. Well, I recently, uh, after a discussion about some legal issues, went back and reread Dred Scott. Oh my heavens, mm -hmm. it's a hor it's horrible. <laughs> you know, I, you wonder, I picked it up and I wonder how it's going yeah, to look. Exactly. It's been many, many years since I've, I've even, you know, really engaged this opinion. And it had not aged well, I must say. But it was very refreshing uh, to go back and read right. Roger Taunton. He tried really hard. He's a very bright guy. He worked his tail off in that 1840s, you know, kind of mm -hmm. elevated language. And he just blew it completely. But, you know, he was working it. He was trying. And it right. was interesting to see how hard he was yeah. working and how little he was getting done. Struggling with many in an 18, you know, 30s, 1840s kind of way with many of the ideas that we have here. It was very rewarding to spend 15 minutes just reading that and remembering where we came from on that. We have come a long way in some yeah. ways. Yeah, well, that's, that's what's, it's hilarious. I like how you say that, working so hard and getting so little done because mm. that's almost verbatim Bell's criticism of the civil rights. He's like, so much work has been done and so little progress has been made.
That was sort of his criticism, you know, in ni- circa 1970, 1973. So. Rarely does one compare Dr. King and Roger Tawney, <laughs> but, uh, you know, humans beings are what they yes. are when it comes to trying to get stuff done. Now, you mentioned some uh, recommended reading, yeah. and it sounds like some excellent sources for people to want to learn more about the higher level theoretical ideas as well as the practical issues in curriculum design. If a teenager asks me, hey, I'm interested in this. I don't feel like I'm really getting it in my class. And I tell them to go read Derek Bell's larvae articles. I'm probably going to get an unfavorable reaction or they just won't do it. Are there resources that you would recommend to someone in secondary school who is genuinely interested in learning more and wants to go beyond what may be available in the curriculum in their local school. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, my introduction to Derek Bell wasn't his his legal scholarship, but was actually his work of fiction, Slave Traders. He had a science fiction story. I was interested in science fiction and came across this. And I think that's an introduction for a secondary school student. It is one where, in like all science fiction, you're not going to get the analysis within. There's not going to be a moment of exposition that's going to be, and this is how that applies to critical race theory, but in order to introduce some of where he's thinking, and it's a very interesting story about this extraterrestrial race that comes to America and makes quite the difficult dilemma that says, we'll give you all of this technology and secrets, but you got to give us your black folk. And the conversation that takes place, I think is a good introduction for young people who want to get a toe dipped into that pool. I'm a big fan of Patricia Williams. Um, This is a black feminist scholar who having grown up in the school system that I grew up in (laughs) and the education I have, the fancy words are not always ones I understand. And Patricia Williams is someone who talked in less fancy words. Mary Matsuda, uh, that Mary is M-A-R-I and Matsuda, M-A-T-S-U-D-A, is another one who I'm able to understand a little more clearly. Richard Delgado is a little bit higher brow for folks and it took me a while to be able to grab around his, although he's got something called the Rodrigo Chronicles, which attempts to do that same thing. It's sort of, and this is where I'll go back to that narrative part. These are people who were like, let's build off of Derek Bell's criticism of the lack of narrative and legal reasoning. Can we explain the law by telling stories? And so Richard Delgado does that with the Rodrigo Chronicles. Those are some of the places that people can can get a start and get a sense because they're not attempting to teach you high legal theory, but rather just telling stories. I appreciated Patricia Williams because she was very clear of like, here's what it means. And so Patricia Williams spends a lot of time talking about, instead of talking about narrative and legal, for example, what she says is people who've been oppressed, who are dealing with stuff, they have a perspective that others don't have because of their social location that we should listen to. And I was like, intuitively, that made some sense to me of, yeah, if I want to learn more, for example, about poverty, sure, I should talk to social workers, but how about the people who actually receive the welfare benefits? They may have a perspective that gives me something that the policy makers never quite understand. Totally coincidentally ran across in recent years the works of Colson Whitehead, the novelist, and he tells stories about race in America using these crazy metaphors. His first book, The The Intuitionist, which is about different ways to investigate the safety of elevators. Obviously, the elevator is a gigantic metaphor, but it's just bonkers mm-hmm. when you read it until you realize, oh, wait a minute, this is about something else. And then more yeah. recently, his book, The Underground Railroad, where he, it's an alternative history where there is, in fact, a railroad under the ground. And and it, that doesn't make any and sense either until you yes. step back uh-huh. and yeah. it takes a while to digest it. And it's it's so 
odd, but so compelling, his storytelling, that it's a very interesting mm -hmm. way to get behind some stuff. There's a whole host of science fiction writers, um, not all classifying themselves as science fiction writers, that talk about issues of race. One of my favorites is W.E.B. Du Bois actually has a short story called The Comet that is about what it sounds like, a comet that is going to be destroying the Earth. And it's just an interpersonal, interpersonal relationship between a black man and a white woman who are underground in a vault, you know, and how they're dealing with life and such. That masterfully tells a lot of what W.E.B. Du Bois' work about race in the nonfiction sense talks about. And so that's where Derek Bell was kind of right, that sometimes telling a story makes it much more clear than another precedent or another legal theory would for the common person, especially. It's been 33 years that we've known each other. Did you think we'd ever be doing something called yes. a podcast together? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I always, always, I always tell my students, I'm like, there are going to be jobs that you don't even <laughs> I mean, know will exist. Imagine that you could have the only way this gizmo yeah, we're looking at with this pictures on it and sound. Yeah. <laughs> just, no. I think there may have been no. the DARPA net no. somewhere out there in the Defense Department, but I, I wasn't using it. We, we were close. We met. We met on the campus of American University. That's so right. We were, we were sort of getting soaked up the electrons, yeah, yeah. maybe, but that's about as yes. close yeah. as we've gotten. <laughs> and now we have this amazing technology, which this has been a great discussion. Of course, going on simultaneously with us doing this, there are discussions that are perhaps not that fruitful about these concepts and I'm hopeful that people who listen to this may get some ideas and engage these ideas a little more constructively. So, Mike, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to walk everybody through these ideas. They're basic to your work, but they're new and interesting ideas to many of the people that you know, just hear about this in the news and are concerned and really do want to learn more. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I love it, David. Today on Coal Mind, I examined sentence by sentence the new Texas law about teaching critical race theory in the state school system. To do so, I invited my old friend, the super energetic Dr. Michael Hester from the University of West Georgia, who brings decades of experience with the relevant theoretical literature, as well as the practical realities of teaching it in the classroom. While much of the new law addresses straw men and non-existent problems, simply reviewing the questions that it poses provides substantial insight about the ideas of critical race theory and what they have to offer our modern-day political dialogue and education system. For upcoming episodes, I expect to have more interviews with other notable voices from around Texas and the United States, and to continue discussing topics about our government's response to the COVID pandemic, as well as the many issues in court now about the new Texas anti-abortion statute. You can subscribe to this podcast on any of the main directories, and if you like it, I encourage you to join other happy listeners and leave a kind five-star review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.